There may be uh, lots of good reasons to go to church, and uh, besides the good coffee and the uh, wonderful and interesting people. Um, but one of the, I think, reasons that is really helpful for us in our culture to, to come to church and to gather together is the fact that we are often driven to distraction. In fact, I think many commentators have talked about our society uh, as being one of the most distracted. Uh, if you have children, and thankfully they're all gone, you know. <laughs> they are distracted, aren't they? Uh, you know, I, I have a daughter, uh, not my oldest, but my middle one, who can do about four things at the same time. You know, Facebook and something else and, and listen to music and all those things. And it's amazing that, but when the voice of mother and father call, she can't quite hear us, you know. <laughs> Which is true of the other daughter and uh, the other son. And, and sometimes, to be honest, true of Beth and I. We're driven to distraction, too. We're, we're doing this and that and the other, and oftentimes not paying very good attention uh, to each other. It's, it's, a, it's a real issue, isn't it? Uh, it's an issue in marriages. It's an issue with families. It's an issue at work, isn't it? Sometimes people don't do something right because they didn't listen very well. Or you were giving instructions and you weren't very clear because you were doing four other things. I remember getting emails back, or doing sending an email and having someone respond back and go, what were they thinking? And until I go back and read my email, and I think, what was I thinking? We're distracted people. And yet we come to a place in, in Acts, as we talk about the gospel, where we come to discover really two strange and, and uh, real things, but, but things that sometimes don't always look like they easily go together. The apostle here says that, that you Athenians, although you do not know God, that you're living and moving and having your life in Him all the time. It's as if He's there all the time and they don't see Him. They can't find Him. They're, they may be groping, they may not be looking, but, but they cannot seem to find God. And yet you also have this reality that when the gospel comes, it evokes a response. No one goes, huh. You know, no one is distracted, in a sense. Um, by the gospel. When God reveals himself, there's a response. When Moses brought the law and came down from the mountain, there was a response. It was quite a light show, you know, and earth show, you know. Um, and when the law came down, there was a response. Now, that response didn't necessarily last a whole long time in terms of a positive, and then there was a different kind of response, wasn't there? When the prophets came and spoke in the Old Testament, people responded. Sometimes they responded by saying, shut up, or throwing them in a pit. But there was a response to the message that God was bringing. When Jesus came, people responded, both positively and negatively. And in the same way with the apostles, when they came and brought the message of the gospel, there was a response. It is often said that for Paul, for the apostle Paul, that when he came to a city, there was either a riot or a revival. <laughs> you know, there wasn't much in between, except for in Athens, interestingly enough. It was one of the few places where there was not the kind of response in many ways that happened in other places, either positively or negatively. And today when the good news comes out to people, when they hear it, and when it's explained, there, are, there is a response. A response of interest or disinterest. A response of revulsion. Some people are revolted by this idea. Or attraction. There can be an intellectual or emotional or volitional either agreement or disagreement with the words, with the gospel. Positive, negative. Sometimes we're interested, but we suspend judgment. Sometimes we simply go, yeah, fine, heard that before, not interested. But there is a response. The themes of the gospel are too deep, too true to our human nature, our human condition, to not have some kind of response from the human heart. The gospel 
is not something that we can be distracted from when it comes to us in power. It will shake us. We may not embrace it. We may say no. We may go back to the way we lived before, but the gospel shakes us. Why is that? I think this passage tells us, I think Paul tells us, that one of the reasons that we can't just kind of ignore the gospel, but we, we respond to it, is, is this, is that we are worshiping people. We are people who worship. All people worship. You might think, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I go with, to a lot, with a lot of people. I work with a lot of people or do things with people who don't worship. Let me tell you what, they worship. And by the end of this sermon, I hope you'll go, yeah, they do worship. Because we are created to worship. And he, Paul, went to Athens, and it was clear that these people were worshipers. They had many temples and many altars throughout the city in which they could worship. But Athens was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a city where people were interested in the latest ideas, the latest fads, the latest styles, the philosophical, intellectual, um, religious, uh, political. They wanted to know. In fact, it talks about here in this passage, it says, they seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. What's new? What's up? You know? So although it was no longer a seat of power anymore, it was an intellectually curious place, religiously curious not necessarily we'd follow any of these things, but we wanted to know what was out there, what was up. And it was very religiously diverse. You could find, in fact, in that city, an altar to almost any god. Every god in the known world. And if you couldn't find your god, don't worry, we had an altar for the unknown god. So, we got you covered. We got religious pluralism as far as the eye can see, and we'll find a god that you can, you can worship. But I want to suggest to you today that the ancient Athenians and modern-day Europe and Luxembourg are not that far apart. They're not that different. They were worshipers. We're worshipers. And you might think, well, that statement, Paul, you know, as usual, is out there. I hope by the end of the uh, sermon today you'll go, you know, I think there's some truth to this. As we understand the universal nature of worship, that everyone worships something we start to realize why when the gospel comes and calls us to encounter a God who calls us to worship, to a life of worship, we're going to respond positively or negatively, with anger or with joy or surprise or questions. We don't just sit back and do nothing. The, uh, the great uh, philosopher, Bob Dylan, <clears throat> who you may know, also wrote some songs, but he had a song that says, everyone serves or what I would say worships someone or something. And he goes on and says, it may be the Lord, it may be the devil, but you're going to serve somebody. You know, thankfully, I didn't sing it. So, And I think he's on to something. We all serve something. Something is at the center of our heart, our lives. So what is worship? Worship is giving yourself to someone or to something that is the most important thing in your life. That's, that's what worship is, is when you give yourself. Worship isn't just something that happens in a room or happens for an hour. It's, it's the... It's the Motion of your heart is the, is the direction of your heart, the push towards something or someone that is of greatest value to which you will sacrifice all that needs to be sacrificed to have and to enjoy. That's why we all worship. Worship can be in religious institutions, in churches, in synagogues, in mosques. It can be in nature. You know, we can devote our time, our passions, our resources often to them. And sometimes we devote our worship to institutions and we forget the God behind the institution. 
if there's one huge mistake that has happened in church after church after church, is people forget that they come to church to worship God, to encounter God, to have their lives recentered on God, and not to hear beautiful music or a stunning sermon or an incredible prayer, although those things may happen apart from the sermon from time to time here. But we don't come to get. We come to give, and we come to give to God because He has ultimate value. Some people worship, they worship themselves, don't they? It could be uh, personal beauty or style. It could be career success, that what I worship in life, what is most value, what I will give myself for is to succeed in my career. What I, maybe it's financial, to make money. Maybe it's intellectual, to be smarter than other people. Maybe it's physical, to look better than other people. And, you know, you can all those things can be fine in and of themselves, can't they? It's good to make money. I prefer that as opposed to the other option. It'd be better to look nice than to not look nice or to dress nice. But when that becomes the pursuit of our heart, when that becomes the thing that when we lose it, our life falls apart, it's not just a nice thing. It's the central thing of our life. And we have turned and we have made it something of worship. Sometimes we worship other people. Sometimes it may be a spouse. Sometimes it may be family members. Sometimes it may be a friend. But they are the most important thing to us, and we give our life to them. But the reality is they can never satisfy us in the way that we long to be satisfied. Some people worship a feeling, maybe through drugs or through alcohol or through sexuality. They try to get some feeling, some, some joy, some sense of, of rightness with the world through exterior things that may be temporary but not lasting. Anything that exists, physical, in the physical world or in the mental world, in your imagination, you can worship. And it becomes the most important thing about you. Worship is about what we love most. Or as Jesus said so well, whatever your treasure is, there your heart is also. Worship is about that treasure. We will always worship what we treasure most. Always. That's who we are. That's the kind of people that God made us to be. That thing that we treasure, that place we find our source of life, our hope, our whole being, our sense of feeling good, that's the thing that we'll worship. See, worship doesn't happen just in ceremonies, in buildings. It happens all of the time, doesn't it? By everybody. You know, it'd be interesting to see if the Apostle Paul came to Luxembourg. He might say, you know, he probably wouldn't see altars and, and little churches or temples with little things outside. He'd probably say, look at, the, look at the, the, obviously your worship is clear in your architecture. You worship banks. You worship the things in banks. You worship the money and the security or the power or whatever that you think that you were going to get from that. And again, I'm not suggesting that money's bad. Again, I prefer to have some than not have some. But when it becomes the ultimate thing, when it becomes what life is all about, then it can become extremely destructive. So Paul can say to them, and I can say to you, and you can say, if you want, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. I'm not suggesting this, but you can say, or at least know, that they, we're all worshipers. And we are worshiping all of the time at the altar of the visible or the invisible, within us, ourselves, or outside of us, but we will worship. And you know, discovering what you worship is really not that hard. 
although it is terrifying to do for most of us. You just have to ask a few questions, like what occupies your free time, your free thoughts? When you have a free moment and you can do whatever you want, what do you do? What do you go after? What do you love above everything else? And to what or to whom will you submit yourself and say, I will not do what I want, but I will do what you want? Those are not hard questions to say. They're just hard to answer. They're just hard to to answer in our hearts and, and look in the mirror and say, that's who I am. I am a worshiper, but not necessarily of the things that I want to worship or the things that I think are best. Maybe it is. Maybe you, you go through that exercise and you go, that's exactly what I want to be. And if so, great. But my guess is, for most of us, we realize that oftentimes our heart wanders, as the old hymn goes, you know, and starts to worship things that are not worthy of our worship. The reality is, is worship is not just something we do and it doesn't have an effect. What you worship, what I worship, transforms us. It changes us. It either enhances us or diminishes us. What we treasure, what we long for, will transform us. You know, sometimes cosmopolitan people, and by the way, if you don't know it, you live in a very cosmopolitan city or country of Luxembourg. But cosmopolitan people like us and like the Athenians often pretend that we are free from attachments. But our lives betray our words. We may be fooling ourselves, and those people who believe with us and believe this fantasy that we're not attached, that we kind of do whatever, they're fooling themselves as well. And you get a big enough group of people fooling themselves, they'll go, well, it must be true. It's not. We're all worshipers. And that's why when the gospel comes to us, when the good news that we've talked about over the last few weeks, when it comes to us, it evokes a response because it challenges our worship. And it says, is that really worth worshiping? Is that what life is really about? Does that really satisfy you? Does that really meet your need? Does that really help you? Does it pull you out? Does it transform you into a, into a better person, into the right person? Or does it diminish you? Does it shave off of who you are? Does it slowly destroy your soul, your spirit? You know... We've talked about the gospel, and this week I'm just going to walk through what Paul says the gospel was here to his. It's not anything new, so I'm not going to take a lot of time. If you're new and you kind of go, that was too fast, um, there are previous uh, messages on the website. And if you're crazy enough to go listen to me on the website, that's your problem, not my problem. So, um, I just, well, I'll move on from that. Okay. The part of the gospel is, is very much laid out here very clearly that God is the creator of all things. Everything that is God created, including you. And therefore, he created you, he owns you. And that God has no need that you or any person or any culture can meet. In fact, he is the one who meets all needs and who satisfies the hearts of all people. He's the giver. We have nothing that we can give him. And God is the one who controls the destinies of peoples and of people and of nations and of history. He's the one in control, not us. And that God made people in such a way that they would look for Him. And even if they're not sure if they want Him, that they would grope, searching for this right thing to worship, this right thing that sustains and satisfies me. And that God overlooked in the past people's ignorance and their prejudice. But He will no longer do that. That that is time for the past, 
and the future, Paul says, that is not the case. And that God has set a day for judgment, the created by the Creator. It's appropriate. And that day is approaching. And that Jesus is that judge. And it's proved by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the thing that no one else has done. And at that point in this, uh, when Paul's talking to the Athenians, that's, that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> that's the end of the message. That's the end of the thing because everyone goes, well, what's this about the resurrection? And, and to be honest, whether Paul knew it or not, Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection, they, they, especially resurrection of a body. Forget it. Resurrection of the soul, yes, but the body, pff, the body doesn't count for anything. And so Paul didn't get to finish the rest of the, of the, uh, of the message that he would have shared, which probably would have uh, been about the fact that this judge who is going to judge you has paid the price, the penalty of your sin, and has restored you back to God, and that's God's purpose and his plan. You know, I suspect that as you, as you heard me read that out loud, that, that you responded in your head to some degree to what I said. You might have said, yeah, that's right. That's what, I, that's what I wholeheartedly believe what Paul said there. My guess is, and I'm sure that there's some of us in here, that said, well, I agree with a good amount of that, a decent amount, but I'm not sure about this God controlling everything. I'm not sure about this judgment to come. I, I still have questions. I'm not sure how I put my head around that and the things I see in the world and how that makes sense with the goodness of God. And, and Or, you know, it could be that you say, you know, I, I just don't buy it at all. You know, nice, you know, good try, but not for me. That was the response that these people had as well, to some degree. There were some who said, you know, not interested. <laughs> so silly. Come on. This is, this, we said we came together for this? Forget about this resurrection and stuff. There were other people that said whether it was sincere or not. It's, it's hard to tell. You know, we'd like to hear more. It might have been, yeah, we'd like to hear more uh, later. You know how that goes, right? Later? Never? Or it might have been, you know, we're interested in hearing more, but obviously, you know, there's kind of a bit of a ruckus here. We can't really hear any more of what you're saying. We'll talk some more. And there are other people that you can read that as we went through, you, know, you could tell responded and who believed. And this church began in Athens by those who believed. One person on the council and one woman that was there. Um, but when we hear the gospel, it has a response. It challenges who we are and what we worship. And the gospel does that continually, not just once. Not just the first time we hear it, it challenges us. But it challenges us until we embrace it. And then ultimately, you know what? When you become a Christian, you know what? The gospel keeps challenging you, doesn't it? Because we keep moving off and worshiping things that are not worthy of our worship. And the gospel pulls us back and says, is that really who you want to become? Is that really worthy of your life? Does that thing really love you more than I do? Embracing the gospel means ultimately embracing a person. Jesus Christ is that treasure that we embrace. It means that what or who I worship shifts from whatever it was before to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not because I have to, but because I've discovered something better to worship. Because there's a worship competition going on. I don't know if you know that. But there's a worship competition going on for you all the time for your worship, to give your soul to, your life to. And what happens when the gospel comes into your heart and your life is you say, you know what, God's one. And I surrender. And I embrace Christ. And as I shift my worship because I want to, 
God starts to free me to love, frees me to serve, frees me to worship. You know, Paul's life is a great example of this. I don't know if you, if you read it in the, uh, you may know the passage in the earlier part. He, he went to Athens and he was waiting there for some friends. And while he was walking around the city, he noticed all these altars. And because of the gospel that had come to him, and, and if you don't know Paul's story, he had fought against the church. He was a Jew and he thought, this is crazy. Until the gospel touched his life and freed him and opened him up and made love, the love of God, the most valuable thing in his life. And then he goes off and he preaches this. And as he sees this city who, who worships but all the wrong things, he couldn't just sit down in the sunshine and relax and get a tan. He says no. And so he starts to go out and he starts to find ways to, to share this good news with other people. And, you know, Paul knows that the good news, it's not like they're going to say, oh, isn't this wonderful? Everybody's not going to do that. This is a guy who's been in prison, been beaten, um, is, is, you know, been stoned and uh, left for dead because of people's response. So he knows not everyone's going to like this. But the gospel, the worship of God, the value of God had become so important to him that he was willing to embrace the ridicule, willing to embrace people thinking that he's a fool so that other people might experience the good news of the gospel. See, the good news changes you. It's changed him. It changes us. Because he loved and worshipped God, he gave the good news to people. And you know what? When we love and worship God, that good news changes our hearts. And we start to share where we are in different ways, verbally, physically, that good news to other people. Good news is out there. In fact, Paul says, good news is all around you. It's all around the people you know and see because God is there. They just can't quite connect it yet. And they connect it when the gospel comes. And it may be challenging news. It may be news they don't like because the gospel will always call us away from something to something. And because of that, it will always challenge what we're worshiping. And usually the things we're worshiping don't give up without a fight. They just don't. But that's okay. God is the one who meets the needs of the human heart in a way that no other thing or person can. You know, for us, the gospel will challenge our cherished beliefs. But God does not serve us the gospel according to our appetite because of what we want and what we like. To worship the one who is true, the one who is treasure, Christ, it means that we will have to adjust to the gospel, not the gospel. That good news adjusting to us. The good news is that Jesus Christ has made it possible for us as people to flourish under the love of God. And to flourish then as not just individuals, but as a community. And one day for the world to flourish again, for heaven and earth to be right again. Remember Jesus' prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the prayer of the Christian, because that is what God is going to do. And he calls us now to live in light of that gospel. And the strange and the hard part is for us is that it means that as we embrace the gospel, we're going to live very differently than a lot of people around us. We will have money, but we won't live for money. We will enjoy pleasure, but we won't live for pleasure. 
We will have wonderful relationships with people who we value and think are great and are very important in our life, but they will never be the ultimate thing. That if it's lost, our lives are lost. Because God has become that ultimate thing that we trust to satisfy us. The question is not, will you worship? The question is only what? What will you worship? How will we respond to this good news? Will we say, interesting, thoughtful, hmm, think about it, maybe we'll talk some more. Will we say, you're crazy. <laughs> that's, that's just a myth. That's just a story made up so that people can be captured by a church or whatever to do the will of that place. Will you say, yes, yes, I want that, but you know what, I also want my other, my other things to worship too, just in case. You know, this doesn't work out good for me. Or will we say, yes, take all of me. Let me have all of you, God, and teach me to worship you, to live under you, to experience all of you. Three questions today for us. Which of those responses are yours? Because <laughs> the gospel doesn't just come and we say, that's nice, and off we go to our other distractions. When it comes to us and gets beyond all of our barriers, it will shake us and make us answer some hard questions. So which response is yours and why? And that is maybe the most important question that you and I need to think about. Why? If I respond, why am I responding this way? What am I holding on to? What am I afraid of? What's holding me back? What's spurring me on? And lastly, what are you going to do with this continual good news that is going to come to you again and again and again of God's love and of his value of being worshipped and in it, the reality that he is the only one that can satisfy you and me and this world? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Do you bow your heads with me? Father, often we think in our minds and we live in our lives that we are independent. That we can take and choose. That we can have what we want and reject the rest. That we are the captain of our souls and nothing will hold sway over us. And yet the reality is that whatever our treasure is, it not only grabs our hearts, but it will pull us in its direction, either for good or for evil. We thank you that when we appropriately and positively respond to Christ and to the gospel, that you give us a heart of love and worship for you that allows all the other loves in our life to take their proper, healthy, and appropriate places. Lord, help us to see again the beauty of who you are and to worship you, not because we have to, not because we'll feel bad if we don't, but because you are worthy of the worship and transform us as worshipers who live, speak, and breathe the gospel, the good news for us and for everyone. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.